and welcome to the LMA podcast featuring thought-provoking conversations with legal marketing and business experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the very first CMO SIG podcast. This is Suzanne Donnell, CMO co-chair for the CMO SIG, and we are excited to have three of our speakers from the upcoming CMO Summit on March 25th in Denver who are giving a preview of their session on building a scalable sales culture in a law firm. Let me introduce our speakers. Their bios are, of course, on the LMA website, but I asked them to give me a few fun facts so that you could get to know them better. First, we have Frank Tropy, who is the growth advisor for Deke Digital. He lives in an 1867 New Orleans house that has a ghost. Frank, tell us what it's like to live with a ghost. (laughs) Well, fortunately, we have a friendly ghost, so uh, it keeps me on my toes. Fantastic. Next, we have Ellen Gregg. She's a partner with Womble Bond and Dickinson. She rescues dogs, and her rescue dogs rule her home. She's had five so far. So, Ellen, we all want to know, do those dogs sleep in the bed with you? (laughs) Absolutely not. Adopt, don't shop, and make certain that you crate train. That's where they sleep. (laughs) Sage advice, sage advice. And then last but certainly not least, rounding out our panel, we have Jeff Antea. He is the partner and chief marketing officer for Plant Moran. And Jeff just got back from Antarctica where he swam with the penguins. Just kidding. Um, he did a bit of kayaking in February and saw just beautiful landscape. Jeff, what, do you, what are your big thoughts about Antarctica? Everyone should go. It's really the most amazing place in the world. And you'll see more penguins and whales and seals than you ever knew existed. Please do it. Definitely on the bucket list. Thanks, Jeff. So, Frank, would you give us a brief overview of why you brought these accomplished speakers to talk with us here today and give a preview of what they're going to discuss on March 25th? Yes, and what a privilege to get to spend time with Ellen and Jeff today. Um, We have on the phone not just people that, uh, um, you know, have been around penguins and rescue dogs and ghosts, but really three experts in the topic that we've been asked to speak upon. Uh, That topic is building a scalable sales culture in a law firm. And uh, I'm reflecting back on a quote from Steve Jobs. Um, Many of you listening may have heard this uh, or read this where he said, start small, think big. Don't worry about too many things at once. Take a handful of simple things to begin with and then progress to the more complex. And what a great lesson. When I was asked to prepare a presentation on building a scalable sales culture in a law firm, I thought about this. You know, like we want to think big, but we have to take those steps along the way that uh, make sense to our audience and our constituents. And, uh, of the uh, uh, over dozen professional services firms that I've worked with, I've thought of the two people who I have just a tremendous amount of respect for. Ellen Gregg is uh, not only the vice chair and an accomplished mass tort litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson, but uh, Ellen is also a pioneer and part of a pioneering culture. Uh, Her firm was one of the very first to embrace the idea that uh, Uh, business development and uh, having the partners participate in growing the pie uh, was an important part of the way that the culture um, would be built. 
Um, and then Jeff Antea, this is an interesting person to have on the call with us because Jeff does not work in a law firm. Why do we have Jeff here today when we're talking about building a scalable sales culture in a law firm? Well, I immediately thought of Jeff because Jeff is a CMO in a super regional marketing, um, uh, super regional accounting firm that uh, um, has had tremendous success. Some of you may recognize Plant Moran from its uh, recent uh, position on uh, one of the Fortune uh, uh, most admired lists. And uh, Jeff's firm has just uh, been stellar in terms of uh, uh, punching above its weight. And uh, Jeff's lessons, I think, will, uh, will ring true for a lot of us trying to figure out what might work in a law firm. What have accounting firms, tax firms, been experimenting with for the last seven to ten years that uh, we can learn some lessons? So very happy to have Ellen and Jeff here today, and, and thank you for that. Um, Suzanne, if I could, I'd like to give just maybe a 60 to 90 second overview of you know, the, the ideas in building a scalable sales culture. Is it okay if I do that before we jump into questions? You bet. Okay, so thanks. Um, this is a, you know, at, at first I thought, you know, we have an hour, um, not, not on this uh, podcast, by the way, but we have an hour at the pre-conference program, and I started thinking about, you know, wow, this topic is so big. You know, some of us as CMOs will we'll wrestle with these interesting questions we're going to talk about today for the next three to five to ten years in our career, and how do we do justice to it in an hour? And um, you know, one of the lessons I took away in preparing this is I thought, you know, if an hour isn't enough, if three to five to seven, ten years isn't enough, how do we describe this in 90 seconds? And, and I think I can do that. I think Steve Jobs' quote is really the beginning. We're in the position as the CMO of a law firm of satisfying very demanding constituents. And um, they think big. These are smart people. They're creative people. They've been trained in something oftentimes other than business development. And uh, we're operating in an environment where law departments are getting more and more challenging um, about the requirements that they have. And uh, not uncommon to find a law firm uh, you know, growing in the low single digits and if they're growing faster than that, they're doing it because they're taking business away from other law firms or they're creating value in a new way for their clients. We talk about building a scalable sales culture. We're going to share the five types of rainmakers that we typically encounter in a law firm. And then we're going to shift and say, what if these people, and we all have them in our firms, what if these people that are very good at certain parts of the business development practice started collaborating more. And so we've identified then five types of activities that uh, when there's better collaboration and a sustainable sales culture, the law firm's top-line growth, revenue per lawyer, and profits per equity partner tend to go up. Um, what we're going to close our session with are some tactics and give the people in the room in the pre-conference program the opportunity to exchange some ideas uh, that work for them. So in sum, I hope you'll get some uh, ideas out of our call today. At the same time, uh, if you're listening to this after the conference, uh, we'll also have a recording um, of some of the flip chart uh, outputs from the session of what CMO said is working for them to help grow their firm at 7, 10, 12% as opposed to 1, 2, or 3%. Um, Suzanne, I know you had a few questions about uh, what we're going to be covering. Uh, pause here and uh, just invite those questions. 
Thank you, Frank, and thanks for such a good overview of what um, our CMO SIG members can expect to experience on the March 25th um, CMO Senate Summit um, on this topic. Very exciting and very relevant to what most CMOs are going through these days. So I know they're going to come away with a lot of really good um, applicable uh, things that they can do right away. So Ellen, um, building a sales culture is a good idea, but has both political and financial costs. What suggestions do you have for building a case for instituting such a program in your firm? Well, it's interesting that lawyers, at least in big law firms, always feel like they have to have a business case for doing something that just makes good business sense. Um, I th we could talk a little bit about the obvious and then maybe some of the not-so-obvious reasons why you want to not only build a scalable sales culture in your firm, but why you want to spend time navigating some of those political and financial costs to have a program and to have resources that support that sales culture. First of all, let me think a, a little bit out loud about the obvious reasons why you want to have a sales culture in your firm and to implement some programming to support that? Well, the obvious reason is clients, right? Clients, the economics of growing your client base, growing your expertise, and quite frankly, the impact on the bottom line. That's the obvious reason why you want a sales culture in your firm. You always want new clients and you want more business, and that does go to the bottom line. But let's think about some of the not-so-obvious reasons. And some of these um, have come about through our personal experience in the firm and our work with Frank in implementing some programming for our lawyers who were not trained in law school to think about sales. And I know that's a dirty word. Nobody wants to be sold. But quite frankly, I do think clients like to know that law firms are thinking about them and how to approach them. So some of the not so obvious reasons. For us, it's also about retention of some of our absolute best talent. If we can't provide the means and the resources for young lawyers and young partners in particular to see a path forward to developing a book of business, which we all know is the path to equity partner in law firms, then we're not going to be able to keep them if we don't provide them that training and that development. We like to say that our uh, program for sales training for our young partners is unapologetically focused on them and their ability to build a book of business to make equity partner. In fact, we call the program Getting to Equity. But there are a couple other not-so-obvious reasons that you'd want to do it. One is your branding. Big law firms, just like any organization, really wants a consistency of message and behavior from its principles when they go to market. And building a sales culture so that when you go to market and you are talking with potential clients, it's easy to tell when you're talking to a Womble lawyer about their business and about the firm because we approach it the same way and we approach it in a way that supports our brand and the way we want to go to market. Finally, I think that it also results in just all-around better lawyering. 
we're all good lawyers. You have to have terrific legal skills to be in our firm and other law firms. But the types of skill sets that are necessary to become great at business development and at client development are not necessarily the same skills that make you a great lawyer. But I can tell you they're the skills that make you a great relationship to have. And clients want great relationships with their lawyers. And when you infuse with a great set of legal skills with phenomenal listening skills and skills to develop deep, caring, empathetic relationships with clients, that translates into better client service and into better lawyering. Not so obvious reasons, but it certainly is a good reason to support a sales culture in your firm. What do you think, Frank or Jeff? Any other comments on that? I love the way that you laid out. Jeff, go ahead. I was just going to say, Suzanne, I think I love everything you said. And as Frank mentioned, we've been on Fortune's list of best places to work for 22 years now. And we often get questions from our staff about, doesn't growth threaten culture? And we sort of take the opposite and just to what you said and that growth actually enhanced culture. And culture is actually threatened in, de- in a decreasing environment. So we really use it as an opportunity for all the things that you said. And we really believe that it's a critical component of us being a best place to work. Jeff, that is a great, just a great question. Doesn't growth threaten culture? And obviously, like we can look at this now and say, you know, obviously the greater threat is not growing. I think we can think about any of our clients from five to 10 years ago whose businesses have changed so much And the successful ones were the ones that responded to marketplace change and stayed out in front of it. And what was really neat about Ellen's description of the obvious and less obvious reasons, I'll just circle back to the importance of the people that uh, are going to be in the room with us uh, at the pre-conference program. If the CMO or if the vice chair of market development does not take an interest in this question of you know, should we have a sales culture? Who else will? In a law firm, if we're trying to make the business case, we often inherently have a culture where people do not want to sell. So without some leadership, without a program, it's just not going to happen. And um, that's a shame because I think, uh, you know, boy, making that list year after year, Jeff, you know, somebody has to have an idea that we're actually going to understand our client's business better if we think about some things like growth. We're going to have more empathy for the client's challenges if someone in our business is saying it's not just enough to say, I'm going to work hard today. I'm going to put more hours in. But instead, thinking more about outcomes. And that's really what a sales culture is. It's thinking about outcomes, and then what are those small steps along the way? Um, great question, Suzanne, and, and uh, th- thanks, uh, Ellen, for jumping on that. Uh, um, I, I took away a lot there. Well, now that we've <clears throat> discussed how to build a sales culture and suggestions about uh, developing a business case, Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about how your sales program at Plant Moran measures ROI and success? Um, new work can result from a lot of reasons, and how do you show progress for the program without devaluing the long-standing relationships that your partners have with clients? Thank you. That's a that's a really good question, and 
you know, I think at the end of the day, increase year over year increase in revenue is an important part of the ROI, right? But it was interesting because several years ago, we found that uh, at Plant Moran, our while our revenue was going up, it was not going up at the same rate as our peer firms, despite the fact that everyone, uh, all the partners gave themselves an above average ranking on their contribution to business development. So we sort of had to step back and go, why is it people think that they're making a contribution and yet we're below our peer firms? And we, we then went back and we um, reevaluated and we went back to activities and we required each partner to have 17 practice development activities a quarter, half of which had to be in person. And our feeling was if, like, if everybody did the right activities, we would then have the ROI that we were looking for. We'd have the increase in revenue that we wanted to see and be more competitive with our peer firms. And I'm happy to say that five years later, we've taken our growth rate from 3 to 7% uh, in a very sustainable way despite the fact that private equity has come in, and we all know in dealing with private equity, it's a blessing and a curse because they buy and then the companies get sold. So we've been really, really happy with this program. And it, one of the things it's done is it's sort of put everybody in the same group. There's always those practice development partners who, who sort of it seems really natural to and really easy, and there's always those people that sort of stunted. So by allowing people to develop their activities and developing those networking opportunities in the areas where they're comfortable. So it might be networking with centers of influence. It might be networking with cold prospects, you know, or it might be networking inside the firm to help other partners penetrate their clients. But they're sort of customized plans as, as it's evolved. And it's really helped us. And it's also then created a wonderful model that the staff under us can emulate. Because my experience is oftentimes people who are really good at practice developers don't really have a formula. They just touch and feel and go. And it's impossible for somebody to follow. So now, we sort of have a process where people can emulate uh, others, and we have seen, you know, the contribution. So, so we might have more time being spent doing this, but the contribution to the bottom line has been what we were looking for. That's fantastic. Um, Ellen or Frank, do you have anything to add um, to what Jeff has said about ROI and success? I have one number that I, I think a lot about uh, when it comes to ROI. And it's, it traditionally, if we think business school ROI, we think about a ratio, you know, or a fraction. It's that return over investment, and there's a percentage. And that business school definition of ROI, I'm going to get away from that for, for a second. The number that I think about is um, it's rooted in, you know, what, what one firm calls their million-dollar roadmap. So picture a group of uh, relatively new partners, or as, as Ellen described, maybe uh, people that are in uh, um, an, an income partnership role and want to get to equity. Um, what is the return on investment when we can take a lawyer who currently has a $700,000 book and get them over a million dollars? We could say, well, that's an extra $300,000 in revenue, or that's a you know, 42% growth rate, and you know, that's, that's nice. That's, that's exciting. But I think about, you know, taking a person on that journey, the return on investment there, where now that person's waking up and saying, I have a million-dollar book of business today, and now my question on million-dollar roadmap is, how do I get my next million? 
You know, anybody that's ever had a $2 million book of business in a law firm at one point had a $1 million book of business in a law firm. And getting people past some of those hurdles, um, I think is one of the most satisfying returns on investment. And by the way, just doing that once inside of a firm has a radiating effect on others in that class or that cohort that look there and say, you know, well, you know, if Julie did that, you know, how did she do that? I, I, I could do that. I want to do that. And uh, that's a really exciting uh, return on investment. I could not agree with you more, Frank. And I'll just put an even finer point on it. One of our metrics that we look at is how many people have we promoted and who is not only hitting those metrics, but who has actually been elevated and moved into that equity partner role because of their efforts and hitting those milestones and and surpassing those milestones. The sheer volume of success that came out of our program so far that we've been able to say in just a few years that a full third of those who have been through our program have been promoted already and have achieved their individual personal goal of making equity partner. And along the way, because our program is very much a collaborative workshop, it's not a one-on-one training program and just coaching one-on-one. It really is a collaborative workshop. The glue and the relationships that come out of that program between partners who did not know each other very well before they entered the program, they began working together to identify opportunities and it's some of the topics we're going to cover during the program is, you know, those those five things that, that Frank referenced earlier that you really have to do in, in order to have a sales culture, things like creating opportunities and finding opportunities and generating leads. They do that in groups and they practice it together and they, they work those muscles so that they create some muscle memory. And when they leave the program, those relationships remain. And some of the greatest ROI for us is the glue that participating in these programs together creates between lawyers who might not otherwise have developed that relationship, that internal relationship. They have other people to brag about and to sell and and to, quite frankly, introduce to their clients. So I could not agree with you more, Frank. And, you know, it's the building of those relationships that holds the firm together in a uniquely different way because the engagement between people increases as well. Well, this is what a great discussion so far. I just can't wait for the summit on March 25th to go into greater detail. Now, what you three have talked about thus far is when everyone goes in the same direction and plays well in the sandbox. What happens if they don't? Frank, I'd like you to tackle this question, which is if you have partner A who's introducing partner B to partner A's client, and it requires partner A's confidence that partner B will do a good job and not mess up the relationship with the client. As firms grow and there are fewer opportunities for partners to work together, how do you help partner A and partner B to develop rapport and trust and build solid referral relationships? Well, that, that, that is a great question. And um, I'm thinking about a conversation I had just one month ago. Um, and it, it's not with somebody on the phone today. 
um, it, it was with a firm and just they shared that uh, they were currently servicing 1.6 practice areas uh, per client in their firm. Okay, so and I don't know if that sounds like a low number or a high number, but you know, just kind of going back to you know everything we've talked about so far. You think about a business case. Can you imagine um, a hospital? that was built with all these talented people and it's a community health system and part of that health system was to say we don't we don't think despite you know all these facilities and and talented people here that over the course of your life you, you're going to ever need more than one or one and a half of our practices i just i don't think many businesses think that way and um I think about, you know, like a tech company and they look at their clients and say, you know, 1.6 products, 1.6 practices per client. No, we help our clients in a lot more ways than that. And yet in many law firms, what happens is because business is so portable and we kind of hold on to things at times, there's uh, sometimes a reluctance to play well together. So let, let me hit that one um, head on. Um, part of what we're going to share is that um, there's, there's five ways that we see lawyers collaborate with each other. And if I think about when it doesn't happen, why would partner A not want to bring partner B in? Okay, well, how about this? I'm afraid partner B might not have quite the expertise that I have you know, so, you know, my client views me as a very high-level person, a luminary, somebody that's so helpful, and I don't want to diminish the perception that the client has by bringing in an unknown factor. So that's a fear element. Um, how about this one? So that's expertise. And this is going to sound terrible, but I've seen it and I've heard it. I don't want to bring in partner B because I don't want anyone else in my client. You know, partner B seems like an okay person and, you know, we've worked together for a few years, but, you know, partner C recently left the firm and some of those clients left with partner C. So is it really wise for me to be introducing other people to my client? I don't want to lose control of that relationship. So, hey, um, Suzanne, like that might be what's going on in the head of partner A. And uh, I'm going to just do a really quick readout of, you know, five areas where we've seen partners collaborate that if somebody's listening to this right now, they might say, you know what, we don't have to start big. We can follow the Steve Jobs advice. We can start small. It might just be one of these five areas that a partner works together. Okay, number one, network activation. So before I ever introduce you, partner B, to my client, maybe there's just a conversation we could have about who are some of the people we know in common. There is zero risk for me as partner A to just have a conversation about my network, okay? Item number two, lead generation. One of the things we've seen in uh, faster growing firms and firms that have a better feeling around sales culture is we're creating interest for other people. And uh, so, for example, if I've been published repeatedly and I'm a luminary in my firm and I have a lot of great um, thought leadership that's out there, one of the things I might do with partner B before I invite, you know, invite partner B to meet with my client is I'll think about lead generation. I might say, 
hey, you know what, I've got an upcoming article, probably could use another voice in it, um, I would love to get a quote from you just on this topic. And then it makes it so much easier when I'm talking, when I'm walking into my client's office to say, you know, you, you may have seen not just where I was written, you know, about this, you know, in, uh, in Fortune, but here's a different perspective that someone else in our firm had. So a couple areas there, networking, lead generation. How about this one? Opportunity creation. This is one that I know is a favorite of Jeff's. Like if you can't create opportunities together in a firm, um, Life's going to be pretty challenging for the next three to five years. Well, what does this mean? It goes back to a word that Ellen referenced earlier. She talked about listening. If I'm in a meeting with a client, I should be listening, not just selectively for what can benefit me, Frank, partner A, but what are some other clues that um, you know, my partner down the hall ha could help a client with? And uh, it actually feels very uh, service-oriented to the client to say things like, you know, this is not an area that I personally focus on, but I have a colleague who is really good at delivering these kind of outcomes for his or her clients. That's opportunity creation. Um, mention the last two really quickly here where we sometimes see partners collaborate. Um, one is in the idea of just key client relationships. So there is no way that even the best lawyer in the world can keep his or her arms around a seven-figure, eight-figure client. A client doesn't want to feel like I only have one point of contact in the law firm. They might like having a quarterback at the law firm, but they like to feel that there is a, uh, an army of resources available to them. And uh, to get the perspective from another partner on a big consumer products company, a big healthcare company, a big uh, uh, financial services institution in the course of key client relationship is a super easy, easy way for partner A to bring partner B into a conversation. That might just be in one of our offices where we say, hey, you know, we're doing a mid-year review on uh, this bank. Uh, they re recently went through a major uh, uh, merger. Would love to get your perspective uh, on, on some of the things that you're seeing from the, uh, the real estate side. Even though you're not working with this client yet, there may be some real estate issues emerging. Can you join us for the planning session internally? Uh, those are four of the five. Uh, uh, last one is just pipeline management. A lot of times what I will do, you know, and, and I'm a partner in a professional services firm, is I will look at my pipeline. Um, and if I'm concerned that uh, we've recently won a lot of business so that it's left the pipeline and I'm starting to now get back into opportunity creation mode, I'll share that with one of my business partners and I'll say, hey, you know what, um, we need to do a better job right now of identifying uh, some new opportunities. We may take an issue right out of the, uh, right out of the headlines. Um, you know, there's a couple in the headlines right now. I won't refer to those today, but we may ping a couple of our partners and say, how do you think this global uh, headline is going to be affecting our clients? And that's so much easier than saying, uh, hey, uh, Suzanne, I'd like to introduce you to somebody who's about to take some work, you know, and do that for you. Little small steps along the way, uh, just like Steve Jobs says, find little ways to involve people and pretty soon uh, you're going to have a big result together. Well, excellent. Um, I'd like to thank Ellen, Jeff, and Frank for participating and putting together this teaser, um, the CMO SIGS very first podcast.
So thank you for that. And I am very excited about the program on March 25th. And you give us a give us a really great overview of what's in store for us and how there's going to be something for everyone and it's going to be a meaty discussion no matter the size of your firm. So um, thank you all and thank you Frank for coming up with the whole concept and formulating this panel. And we look forward to seeing um, these panelists as well as everyone in the CMO SIG at the CMO Summit on March 25th. Thank you for participating. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Jeff. Great job. That concludes another installment of the LMA podcast. To discover all that LMA has to offer, visit legalmarketing.org. For links to content featured in this episode, please check out the show notes. If you like the podcast and want to help others find us, we hope you'll take the time to subscribe to it and rate us on iTunes. Thank you and have a great day.